This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 40 and season three of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined by a really great guest for this season premiere. He is the developer behind Halide, which is an award-winning camera app for iPhone. It's Ben Sandowski. Welcome to the show, Ben. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So uh, 2018 must have been quite a big year for you. I know that you launched Halide in 2017, but at least for me, kind of looking at this from the outside, it looks like 2018 was the year when like things really took off and you started seeing people all over the place kind of talking about Halide and how much they really like this app. Uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a great year. It's been uh, we've been incredibly lucky. Uh, what's funny is that they say that you never really beat that first launch enthusiasm. And uh, that's true. You know, we haven't uh, really had like the same sales day as around launch. But uh, over time, we've just been continuing to build momentum as we deliver features. And slowly but surely, uh, uh, our ranking in the app store has been climbing um, during off peak time. So it's been sort of averaging higher and higher as we uh, are pumping out new features and uh, getting more conversation going. So, you know, 2018 is just incredible and uh, we're really uh, lucky for it to happen. And I have no idea how we've had time to do that because I just got married in 2018, engaged uh, in 2017, so uh, and then moving. So somehow all of these balls in the air and uh, still things are um, going really well. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't know about you, but like when I am multitasking like that, like obviously I haven't had a wedding in the last year, but you know, when you have a lot of things going on, this is when I personally can really like perform really well because I start kind of getting very organized by necessity while per default, I'm a kind of disorganized person. But once I have a lot of things kind of to juggle, I just have to focus in on things. Yeah. It's like that saying that uh, the amount of time extends to the uh, length of the project schedule. So uh, it, it, it forces you to ruthlessly prioritize what actually is going to make the most impact. Uh, the worst thing to do is like have no clear direction and no time limit. And then you open Reddit and you read Twitter and <laughs> right. yeah, it, it, you, you, you become very focused very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in terms of kind of the growth of the app and, you know, people learning about the app and, you know, getting in excited about it and your ranking climbing in the app store, like you mentioned, I guess like being a camera app and actually like having something that people can produce with the app that you're making must have been kind of beneficial in that sense, because, you know, someone will show off a really cool photo and, you know, the other person will ask, well, how did you make this photo? Well, I did it with Halide. Absolutely. Uh, I think that there's there's a level of virality of if you give a tool to people, they'll start telling each other like, hey, did you check this out? Uh, how did you pull this off? Or um, it's interesting with the iPhone XR, uh, you can't take portrait photos in the default camera app uh, uh, of anything other than people. Right. Uh, and so we added a feature uh, right around the time the XR launched where we unlocked it so you could take a portrait photo of like your pets. Um, the, the quality uh, is usually pretty good. It's a little hit or miss, but a lot of people were amazed like, whoa, I have this totally new feature. And then they would start telling each other on various channels. Um, uh, Sebastian tends to sort of uh, uh, check out the Twitters uh, on the official account and sort of uh, see how the conversations are going. 
marketing and uh, get a temperature read there. And so what we'll find is, yeah, a lot of um, our marketing, we actually in 2018 spent $0 on any sort of social networking ads. Um, it's all been word of mouth and just positive reviews. Yeah, this is really amazing. So, uh, speaking about pets, you, um, you mentioned there that you implemented like a, you know, a portrait mode for pets. And I saw a tweet from you a while back, which I thought was really funny, which was that you can now walk into an Apple store on the other side of the globe and you can see a picture of your dog on that phone <laughs> because Apple has pre-installed Halide on some of their devices in the stores, right? Oh, yeah. So, um, we uh, around uh, October, we had to do a special builds to get in the store. Um, there are certain rules like you uh, you can't actually save content uh, that for a long period of time. Like when you close the app, it has to clear out uh, the content that the user created because you don't want someone to leave something offensive. And the next person picks up the phone. And so we had to preload it with a bunch of sample photos and we added a little onboarding experience. And uh, in the end of the day, I, I suspect the total number of sales from uh, from the participating in this is not going to uh, equate the amount of time it took to put together the demo build. <laughs> but it's just cool to have it out there. And if people, um, because we're a paid upfront app, uh, we don't have any kind of trial uh, or a demo in the app store. You have to pay up front. If someone is on the fence, we can just say, well, if you want to play around with it, just walk into your local Apple store and uh, pick it up and, you know, have some fun. Yeah, give it a go. That's a, the best trial I've ever heard. It's like, just go to your local Apple store. It probably doesn't scale to everyone, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it works. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm guessing that like a, a big part of this, uh, this journey and you, you being featured by Apple and things like that is the fact that you've been, uh, very, very good, I will say, about adopting new features, not only kind of in the operating system, but also uh, from the hardware itself, like you mentioned, you know, uh, building features specifically for the 10R and things like that. Uh, you know, as we talked about prioritization as well, uh, how does that kind of go for you when you have all these new features you could potentially build into the app based on a new hardware? How do you kind of decide which one to to adopt? Uh, that's a really good question. And it's a cost-benefit analysis. Like, uh, you have to ask what's going to have the most impact. And you can't go purely on numbers today. Like in the case of the 10 and uh, the 10R, uh, we started work on the 10 redesign uh, where we added um, affordances specific to the notch interface. We added that long before it was announced. Back when there were, uh, we started speculating what we would do back when there were rumors that the new iPhone have um, uh, the notch. Uh, when uh, Guillermo Rambo uh, was uh, posting uh, <laughs> interesting finds, you're like, okay, well, uh, he has a good track record. So if this is what the final design is going to be, what would it look like? And so uh, if you wait until the it's skating to where the puck's going to be, right? So yeah. if you wait too long, then you're not going to be there in launch day. But you also have to balance it out. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it's no surprise we have zero plans for uh, Halide for Apple TV. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, I, I think we had an April Fool's uh, feature uh, for uh, uh, Halide for Apple uh, CarPlay. Uh, so you can take a selfie while you're driving along. That's not going to come along. So you kind of <laughs> have to understand also who your user base is. So, you know, I'm, we don't actually keep detailed analytics on our users because it's just our philosophy around, um, privacy. But, you know, deep down, we know that not everyone has an Apple Watch. We do know though that for those of people who do have an Apple Watch, uh, it's really useful to have a remote trigger similar to what you get in the default camera app. 
Um, you know, if, uh, th- there's all sorts of fun uses for it. So, you know, you sit down and you say, okay, we're not going to devote a whole lot of time rethinking and putting the entire interface in Apple Watch, but what are the top two features? Uh, well, you want to have a real-time preview. Uh, what's the uh, simplest way to implement that? And, okay, having a timer would be really useful and then reviewing the photo afterwards. But, you know, we don't have the ability to adjust auto f- or to adjust manual focus or exposure on the Apple Watch because y- it's not really going to be a good experience you're going to want to do that on your larger screen and just let it do one small thing really well it's uh, sort of like a, a true mvp like minimum viable product i know that's kind of become kind of a little bit of a quote-unquote dirty word because people use it to build these kind of you know broken products and then ship them and then never update them but you know in the, in the true sense of the word that that is really what you're describing where you're taking your product and you're saying okay what are the minimum things we could do to actually build something really useful here exactly i think that the worst curse you can have is too many resources and so that's kind of the cliche with like gigantic venture-backed companies that have like so many engineers to work on a problem is that you kind of lose sight of what should be the top priority right now and you think that there's you know it hey, we have all these engineers, let's just throw them on this thing. And so you need sort of a ruthless efficiency. And I think that you see that a lot also at Apple, who is infamous for having very small teams. The story I heard was that um, the Safari uh, you know, front end, not WebKit, but Safari on iOS had like less than five engineers. Depending on who you ask, it can be like, oh, it was all one dude. But <laughs> I, I put it another way, there are not a hundred engineers uh, working on Safari. And, right. um, and you can see in the product where the product is extremely focused and uh, there's a clear narrative about what they're working on and they don't have time to sort of feature creep, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you can kind of see also that the context is shared among the team. Everyone is kind of heading in the same direction rather than, you know, pulling in all these different threads at the same time. Exactly. So uh, speaking about big tech companies, <laughs> before you went off on your own and, you know, you built uh, Halide and all, all, all these kind of things, uh, you worked at Twitter, but you worked there before it was like a really huge team. Uh, if, if I have my facts right, you were one of the first hires for, for doing in the iOS app. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, I joined in 2009 and uh, I think Twitter launched its South by Southwest push around like 2007-ish. And so by 2009, it was certainly um, you know, growing, uh, but uh, I was, as far as total engineers in the company, I think I was engineer 30, and that includes like the back-end engineers, web uh, support, and so on. And uh, I think I'm tied with uh, my friend Sean, who started like two days before me. We're tied for the first team uh, members of the mobile engineering team. So he was in charge of SMS, and uh, I was put in charge of rebuilding their mobile experience, which up to then was this feature phone site that was part of their big Rails app that clearly someone knocked out really quickly, and it served them well. But it's like, okay, let's build a website that's optimized for this iPhone, which is starting to really take off. Uh, and so for the first six or so months, uh, I built their uh, decoupled web uh, mobile.twitter.com uh, service. Uh, and then around 2010, the company decided that uh, they wanted to uh, have a first party uh, Twitter client, because uh, up till then it was all third-party apps, and they decided that the right way to do that is to acquire uh, Tweety. Right. And so we, you know, uh, that was interesting going through uh, that experience, you know, and uh, uh, integrating uh, Tweety was Lauren Brichter, uh, and so integrating him into the uh, team. And so when he joined, they're like, well, uh, 
if he gets hit by a bus, that's bad. So let's 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 get at least another engineer on that. And so they said to me, hey, you've done some cocoa before, right? In iPhone development. And at the time, uh, I probably had more experience in Mac cocoa than iOS development. I'd done a little iOS development at my previous job, but I was not at all good. Uh, and so, you know, the opportunity, though, to work with someone so influential as Lauren and to up my skills, like, I leapt on that. Yeah. So... Then for the next six or so months, I think, uh, it was uh, Lauren and I working on iOS. And um, I think in that time we launched uh, Twitter for iPad and eventually roughly in that time frame, Twitter for Mac. And by Lauren and I, I mean uh, mostly Lauren with me rushing to keep up and help how I can while I was <laughs> ramping up on um, iOS specifics. Because at this point, I'd already been you know doing development for at least five years, but mostly web and uh, infrastructure side, but not really um, uh, heads down on iOS. So then after that, uh, maybe six months in, they're like, okay, let's start scaling up the team. And they started adding an engineer or two uh, every like a uh, month or two. And then they sort of transitioned into, well, uh, would you be up for taking a tech lead position? Uh, and so I sort of I was still contributing, but more steering the ship in terms of architecture and uh, technical uh, discussions, helping the uh, putting process te- on the team like, OK, let's do code reviews, um, you know, things like that. And so by 2012, uh, you kind of burn out being on the front line and especially at a very very popular company that's always in the spotlight like Twitter. Yeah. And so by 2012, it's like, uh, I don't know, like I, I also the team itself at, at this point, I think at least there were 20 engineers on it. And there was a bigger question of, okay, well, the, the company's pivoting to be all mobile first. And eventually we'd like to have a hundred engineers being able to contribute to one code base. And so I basically said, all right, well, I'll, you know, I'll spear some of the efforts on the mobile infrastructure side. So, uh, you know, this, there was a team made up of uh, the uh, Android lead at the time and some other um, really great engineers who are much smarter than me. And we formed a group that uh, we'd sort of figure out how do you, okay, how do you contribute code into one code base without everything collapsing? How do you set up a feature uh, flag system? Uh, what do release schedules look like? And sort of, again, even more steering the ship. And then, uh, you know, went to, I, I ended up doing more mobile infrastructure there until, you know, 2014, uh, after the IPO, uh, it was a nice little ribbon to put on that experience. Um, you know, and it was time to sort of move on at four and a half years where you just sort of want to, you know, move on to the next chapter. And so, uh, yeah, I went on and didn't really know what I wanted to do next, uh, and, uh, ended up sort of doing a bunch of different projects while I was figuring that out. Yeah, what a journey, right? Like starting out in such a small team and then like leaving at the point where it was like already very, very big. Uh, and it sounds like like all of these things that you did to scale up kind of were implemented kind of organically as you went. Like the code base, you could still track the code base all the way back to the, uh, to the Tweety days, like to the actual original code base. Oh, yeah. Uh, you could see header files with a copyright date of like uh, 2008 or 2009. And, uh, so Lauren wasn't uh, a front-end developer before he worked on um, iPhone apps. He actually had a background in electrical engineering. And so even though he didn't know all of the theory behind things, uh, you know, I, I doubt he'd ever heard the term solid, um, uh, right? Right. <laughs> the code base was great. 
uh, and it was really resilient and there is a discipline to it. Uh, and so for the most part, it wasn't difficult to scale it um, uh, as far as like, you know, every couple of years, there'd be a major redesign and the bones, the, the model layer was able to um, uh, survive to the point that actually I don't think that Twitter for Mac would have existed if the code weren't so well structured because the model layer was so, uh, you know, isolated from the view that a lot of Twitter for Mac was solving the UI layer problem and the desktop specific interactions. But for a while, um, the two code bases, uh, they had a shared sub-module for all of the uh, core logic. So um, a lot of the code base was really, yeah, it, it scaled well. I think that as these things go, a lot of the problem ends up being more about how do you manage people. Um, yeah. And, you know, the the issue of communication and things like that, which is a whole, whole separate topic. Yeah. Once you get past that point that we talked about with the Safari team, you know, once the whole team can't have the same context kind of in their heads and you need to end up setting up all these structures and things, you know, both meetings and, and how you communicate and also processes and things like that, you know, things inherently kind of become more complex. Uh, but it's always super cool to hear that, you know, there, there's so many kind of, um, stories in the community of, of people doing these like big 2.0 rewrites, right? Where you take all of your code, you just burn it to the ground and, and you, you ship a new thing, which usually has kind of the same bugs, but just in a different kind of form. <laughs> yep. So it's always really interesting to hear. And it was the same at, at Spotify where I worked earlier, where we were just kind of continuously kind of taking care and expanding on the same code base instead of doing that kind of clean slate rewrite. Yeah, it's it's interesting that a lot of people look at a rewrite as some kind of triumph when it's kind of like you're declaring bankruptcy. And yeah. I think a common trap people will fall into is they then invest in the big rewrite uh, because, uh, you know, the whole code base wasn't sustainable, but they don't solve the fundamental issues, whatever they were, that got the code base in there in the first place. So then they open the floodgates like, okay, here's the new place, uh, go party down. And then you slowly just accrue the exact same technical debt. And then, you know, you end up having to do a rewrite every couple of years. Yeah, exactly. So uh, there was one really interesting thing, I think, that happened between uh, your Twitter days and uh, now with Halide. Of, of course, you've been been up to a lot of different s small projects and things like that. But one thing that when I was reading through kind of your uh, your resume, if you will, uh, that kind of um, got my attention was that you consulted for the HBO show Silicon Valley. So uh, this is a show that I think a lot of people, you know, watch and and, and enjoy. Uh, and one thing that I've always been been fascinated by by that show is the fact that most of it seemed to be very accurate in terms of of, of, of technologies. And you know, you, when you see code on the screen, it looks like actual code. It's not, you know, like in some movies where you know they're hacking the system and it's just like HTML on the screen. <laughs> yeah. So what was it like working on that show? So uh, I joined that on the second season and uh, a friend of a friend connected me with a person who's their uh, lead of all of the tech branch on that show. And um, one, they just do incredible research and they work with real engineers uh, from like you know me to an engineer from uh, Netflix. Uh, they actually, uh, I think, had uh, Mark Pincus as a consultant. And actually, I think the next year they had uh, Dick Costolo, who was the former CEO of Twitter on. Uh, as a, a major consultant. So they do a lot of, um, a ton of research. And uh, so they brought me on originally because they were planning to have this plot line of uh, the cousin of uh, Dinesh 
builds this yo clone called bro right (laughs) and the idea was that we one we'd build it um and in the process they would find out what is the experience of putting together an iphone app uh at minimum we're going to give it to cast and crew maybe extras and the 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 dream goal is to release it in the app store uh at the same time in the back of your head you know you know the numbers of what it costs to have a messaging app so uh, (laughs) even though it was a clone of yo the actual app that i ended up building and um, uh, we built together was uh, a full featured messaging app uh, where you could text and photos you could send like (laughs) i don't want to say an emoji but like crude drawing kind of uh, um, like things in there and um, sketch emoji maybe (laughs) kind of kind of yeah and so it was a full functioning app but and i and i built it on parse which is also i'm sure the sign it will never ship and so it as we were getting toward the end of it, you know, they did the numbers in a spreadsheet. And also, I th- I hope they thought about, do we really want to be in charge of a content platform? Uh, you know, what happens when someone sends something terrible, right? So, you know, it never shipped. And um, the experience I got out of it knowing that is that this was actually also my first uh, project where I was able to learn Swift. I think it was around the time of Swift 1 to Swift 1.1. So I got that out of it. And also the experience of, you know, being able to do all this, um, they tell you up front, like, don't do this for the money. <laughs> you do it because you have a lot of fun and, uh, you know, you'll get something out of it. And what's nice is uh, because the scope of the project kept growing, like it turns out uh, building an iPhone app is a lot of work. It turns out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they ended up uh, giving me uh, a background cameo on the season premiere of, uh, of season two. So if you look at the funeral scene um, uh, with the, the cast and the audience, uh, I'm directly behind all the cast. I ended up screenshotting it and putting it on Instagram. Uh, and it's, uh, I, I, I think that was incredibly generous of them. And, uh, yeah, I, that was a lot of fun. Um, uh, also just being on the production side of, uh, understanding how all that works, sitting in the writer's room and answering questions, uh, meeting Mike Judge a few times. It was like, you know, it was, I think it was much better than, um, uh, than getting paid more. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Now I have to go b- back and watch that episode just to see just to see your cameo there. If you'll blink and you'll miss it, but it's there. <laughs> nice. All right. So uh, let's now go ahead and move into our main topics for this episode. So on this episode, we want to both talk about what it's like working like really close with a designer and some of the tips that we have for a better kind of workflow between development and design, because I know that a lot of people have challenges in this area. And then we want to you know talk a little bit more specifically about you know what goes into building a camera app. And finally, also talk about uh, everyone's favorite topic, which is view controllers and architecture, <laughs> right? So uh, let's start from the top. Um, you are working with uh, with Sebastian, which is the designer for for Halide. And we mentioned earlier that you've been uh, very good at adopting um, features related to new hardware and also like taking advantage of the hardware in terms of the design. For example, like showing UI at the in the kind of ears next to the notch on the iPhone 10. Uh, you have very just gesture driven UI. And uh, I also really love your onboarding flow where it's like you're you're flipping through this like old camera manual. <laughs> which is a very nice touch. So uh, what's it like for you and Sebastian? Like what, what does your kind of designer developer workflow look like? And how do you kind of produce these, these UIs by working together? 
First, it shouldn't be surprising, but uh, if you're working with an awesome designer, your life is significantly easier. Uh, <laughs> I think that so Sebastian's background is that uh, uh, he for a while was working at Apple. He actually worked on um, uh, what uh, a component that years later became the MobileMe uh, <laughs> interface with the rich Corinthian leather. Uh, but he also worked on various projects at Apple. And um, so already the fact that we see to eye to eye on certain aesthetics and the no. Knowing that the Apple design system is um, uh, what we both agree in. So there's never any kind of like disputes about the overall direction and what we're trying to accomplish. Now, I think that um, as a general rule with any designer, a good designer is just another engineer. And it just so happens that they're experts in understanding human physiology, like the the swipe area of your thumb. Uh, they understand how the eye is drawn towards certain things, and they're able to develop a consistent language. Uh, well, I would recommend everyone read uh, a book, uh, The Design of Everyday Things. Uh, I think it's by Don Norman, and uh, on the cover is what's called a masochist teapot. It's a little joke. <laughs> uh, and what this book is, it doesn't really cover anything in software. It was actually written back uh, in the time of command line interfaces, but it's about the everyday interactions uh, with objects and the psychology of interaction. And so uh, you as an engineer wrapping your mind around these very basic concepts, um, you kind of understand what a good designer is thinking about. And it also gives you the chance to contribute in ways that you're not going to get if someone just throws a JPEG over a wall to you and says, hey, build this. Right. Yeah. You know, so Sebastian and I will talk on a high level of a new feature that you want. Like, for instance, like that onboarding manual, uh, he pitched it to me like the overall experience is that we want this to be like a luxury um, uh, experience. Experience. It's just like you got a high quality camera in a store, you brought it home and there's this manual and the manual is that first fun experience with a beautiful design and it's inspired by the classic Polaroid uh, manuals. Yeah. And so he pitched it to me without showing me a single uh, screen and I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. And I let him go and run and uh, build that and he came back with the design and it's like, perfect. I guess as a co-founder, I'm supposed to give feedback. As an engineer, rarely should you really give feedback. That's like giving notes to someone. Um, uh, it's just, it, it's a very tense situation. You never want to be the engineer who has advice for a designer. What you might have is a question. So if he has, shows me a screenshot and I'm not clear what the interaction is supposed to be or what he's going for in a transition, then, you know, in a very careful way, articulate, well, I don't quite understand what's going on here, but don't. Don't try to outsmart the designer. Assume that they're making uh, the best decision until you see otherwise. And then if you're working with someone who who isn't as experienced, then you kind of find little psychological tricks you can play to kind of get around that awkward situation. But generally, you know, uh, if you're working with someone talented, just let them run with it, right? Yeah, and I think that's that's good advice in general. Like, you know, when people are giving feedback, I think it's it's good to keep in mind that, you know, you are at the end of the day kind of, not necessarily criticizing, but questioning something that someone poured a lot of their, their themselves into, like a lot of their energy and hard work. And uh, asking questions is a really great way of kind of surfacing maybe those questionable areas of something. Like if you get a design and there are some things you look at and you're like, hmm, I'm not so sure about this. It might be from a technical point of view that you're not sure if that's feasible to implement or something you might not have seen before in other apps and it kind of feels alien. Um, asking questions about it is, I think, a lot better approach than to kind of just, you know, start criticizing guns blazing. 
Yeah. So much of improving things is about finding the right way to give the feedback in a constructive way. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned earlier there that, you know, uh, the process of going back and forth and working closely together is, is a lot better than throwing a JPEG over a wall. And um, this is something that I've seen in quite a lot of teams that there are these walls in between like the engineering department and the design department, or even within a little small team that the designers and the developers are working very, very separately. And this is something that I usually try to, to address whenever I work with a team and to try Try to get people to work more closely together because at the end of the day, we are building one product that might consist of visuals and code, but it all kind of comes together. So what are your kind of top tips in this area? Like how to avoid these walls, both kind of drawing from your experience at Twitter and, and working with Sebastian? Sure. And I think that one thing that works for me and the projects I work on is cutting down the amount of time between him handing me a screenshot. Uh, and at some point, like, I don't want to be over his shoulder while he's figuring this stuff out. I want to give him time to, uh, you know, kind of construct his idea. He'll hand me a, a, a screen of what he's going for and just cutting down the amount of time between something usable in his hands and, uh, just creating like a one-off build. And I'll say, Hey, this is just hacky and here's what's broken, but is this what you were going for? And, uh, getting a conversation going because I think that it's easy to fall into a trap of building perfect code and, you know, you need to, uh, and this is one of the issues I have with like test driven development is that you kind of, if you start with a test, you're kind of backing yourself into a corner and there's a nice benefit of having throwaway disposable code if you know what you're getting into. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's, um, there's that, but also again, the more you can study on these things, I know the very basics of typography. Uh, I read um, uh, the book uh, from uh, List Apart. They have a book on typography. Very simple. You know, you can um, uh, read it on a weekend or so. Uh, I understand the basics of color theory. I understand, um, you know, uh, I think... Uh, I forget. Uh, there's this author. I forget the book she uh, wrote. Her name is Robin Williams, not related to the other one. Um, but it's a very short, thin book on design that understands, hey, size matters because of this. When you place uh, items of different size on a screen, uh, then uh, your eye is drawn uh, more toward the contrast, like little things like that. And you don't need an MFA to understand this stuff. So having a common language to speak in also allows me to implement things um, without uh, the designer asking, like I know to create larger tap targets or to do cleverness in tap routing to give a greater affordance. So when a user swiping, I, I secretly give a little larger area depending on the state of the app uh, to sort of give them uh, a little more leeway and things feel more natural. But if you rely on a designer hand holding you in all these details, it's just you're going to lose so much momentum and uh, you're never going to reach the same uh, quality. Yeah, absolutely. And there are really two parts to that, I, I think. Like the first one is a little bit like living in each other's worlds. So if you have like the design world where you have things like typography and color theory and information structure and things like that, and you have our kind of code world, I mean, there's a lot of overlap. And I think the, the, the more we can kind of live in each other's world and take a look and, and, and really be interested and in paying attention to what's going on, uh, the better the cooperation will be. And, um, some kind of manifestations of this, at least for me, has been like back in the day, I used to always kind of demand from a designer that they would give me 
all the assets like ready cut, like in the, in all the right screen sizes, all the right resolutions. But these days I am installing sketch on my machine. I am asking them for the sketch file. I'm going in there and I'm kind of, you know, getting my own assets. And when we have a conversation around that, oh, okay. So where does this go? Okay. All right. So this is how this is supposed to behave and kind of do that work in order to kind of bridge that gap. And the second, second part of that, um, to me at least, is a lot of designers, they will design for, for multiple platforms. For example, they will do web, iOS, and Android. And also for me, kind of being a little bit like the steward of the iOS experience. And that goes back to what you were saying around like touch targets and things like that. And really, you know, paying attention to those kind of things. And, and, and again, not, uh, just requiring the designer to, to handhold you through that, but actually take some ownership of that yourself. Yeah. And I think again, um, if you're working with a great designer, your life is so much easier. I think there was a struggle around 2011 while all of the industry was moving over toward a mobile future where you'd see a lot of designers who just didn't have a, a background in mobile and you'd end up with these design patterns. They were trying to shoehorn in these other um, systems like the, the hamburger menu, which, you know, it's funny looking back, you don't realize Every day, everyone was using a hamburger menu and everyone was just following the leader and repeating this design pattern, which was just terrible. It was measurably bad. And it's very easy, you know, to do these things just because everyone else is doing it. And so if you're working with a good designer, this isn't an issue. But very often I found that if you're having trouble implementing a problem, sometimes it's because just at a high conceptual level, something isn't working, maybe in an interaction or the flow through the app. And so the the, there's that uh, rule, I don't know if it's Conway's law that systems are destined to resemble the communication structure of the company that built it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have this weird system with these people not communicating with each other, um, I think that's the joke now with microservices. If you uh, show me 10 microservices, I show you 10, 10 teams that hate each other. Yeah. You can see the org chart in the app, right? <laughs> like here's the search team, here's the profile team, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. So you know, if you, if you solve a lot of the communication problem and the knowledge transfer, then, uh, you know, it, it, it all improves. Yeah. Awesome. I'm sure that this is a topic that we'll return to on future episodes as well. It's a, it's a topic that I'm, I'm personally very passionate about, but yeah, uh, the, the nicer you can be to your designer and the better you can work together, uh, usually the better products we end up building. So next up, we want to dive a little bit more deeper into kind of the, the technical details and talk a little bit about what actually goes into building something like a camera app. Because we talked about the UI and the design, and that's, of course, one big part of, of building a really nice user experience. But uh, I'm sure that there's a lot of things going on under the hood in Halide. Uh, you mentioned that you have your own kind of implementation of, of portrait mode and things like that. So from kind of a high level, Ben, uh, what goes into building something like a camera app? So in theory, you could build a camera app in a day, uh, even if you aren't using UI image picker controller, uh, you're mostly just calling AV Foundation and the Photos framework, uh, AV Foundation to access the manual settings of the camera and photos to write to the camera library, right? You can just bang it out in a day and uh, great, just go build it. But when you want to do anything non-trivial, if you want to do something really interesting, then you start having to dive uh, in a lot of the theory behind it. You need to understand the difference between RGB and YUV um, color formats. Uh, and you have to deal with real-time rendering. Um, so, for instance, with uh, 
focus peaking, which is one of those features that I I knew had to be in the V1 of Halide, and it was kind of a, a sign of things to come where we need to, uh, at in this case, fortunately, only 30 frames a second, uh, we need to be reading video buffers, uh, executing shaders to uh, run the uh, focus peaking pass on it, and blitting it out to screen. So you start entering a domain that I'm generous to say it resembles game programming. It is not a <laughs> fraction as difficult, but as far as the domain expertise, you have to understand how to write shaders and you kind of have to understand memory efficiency and, and uh, pipelining and things like that. So it's certainly more low level if you want to do anything interesting. And then there's also a separate uh, issue of just um, in the case of, for instance, working with raw photography, uh, even though, uh, and we can talk about raw in a minute. So it's a it's this particular file format that photographers find invaluable. The issue is then um, uh, in the product, including advanced features without alienating beginning photographers and allowing anyone to pick up the app and make it usable. Uh, and this goes into design, but uh, Sebastian said that he didn't want to design an app that looks like an airplane cockpit. Right. <laughs> so you can just keep adding as many features as you want. That's the beautiful thing about software. There's no cost for the build materials. But how do you intelligently come up with an information architecture and different experiences uh, to uh, make it easy for everyone? Yeah, absolutely. So I want to go back a little bit to what you said uh, just a moment ago about kind of this like real-time programming when you're writing shaders and you're drawing onto the screen. And this is an area where uh, it's kind of interesting because as iOS developers, very few of our code paths actually execute on every frame. And I think this is a reason why you see, you know, so many kind of um, bottlenecks and problems related to something like scroll performance, where we are usually uh, hitting a lot of our code paths every frame as we're scrolling. So usually this is a pretty big context switch for a lot of iOS developers when you uh, go from that, uh, you know, nice async model where your code gets called every time like there's a new layout or something like that to just like writing the raw kind of pixel math in order to actually put pixels onto the screen. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that most developers don't hit this when it's kind of the curse of Moore's law that as we have faster devices, it kind of gives more slack to the engineers that they don't have to worry as much about these performance bottlenecks. Uh, in a perfect world, there's no reason your phone shouldn't get 14 hours of battery life. Uh, it, in fact, you know, most of what, uh, improves battery performance is just the, uh, the performance of the code that's running on it that gives the CPU more time to sleep. And, you know, there's so many implications there, but unfortunately users don't know that you're writing unperformant code until you hit one of these frame bottlenecks. Yeah. Right. So it, it unfortunately also you often can't back into high performance like there's this idea of like well just build it the this way and then in, at the end you can all optimize it and if you're lucky maybe <laughs> yeah uh, but if you do something that's totally ignores anything performant you'll get like a five percent or a ten percent improvement but you're not going to get orders of magnitude improvement um and you know we could go into that whole school thought if you go into deep game programming then you start thinking about things like uh, efficient pipelines and data oriented design and all sorts of details like that but i think that you kind of always need to in the back of your head be thinking about performance uh and also being able to say well we don't have to worry about it here but at least i can 
I can improve performance later if uh, if it becomes an issue. Yeah, and you mentioned the word pipeline there, which is a big keyword for me. And that is that if I can structure my code as kind of a pipeline of operations, where each operation is you know, as kind of atomic and as independent as possible, then I can usually make these kind of um, tune the performance uh, later, where, for example, if one of those operations starts becoming a bottleneck, if I, you know, uh, use uh, instruments to to uh, to profile the app and I discover that, for example, my image loading code is the big, biggest bottleneck, if that code is, is clearly separated, then I can go into that and I can take a look, okay, uh, what is it that I'm hitting here? Is that I'm, you know, hitting some kind of caching problem or or something like that and and really kind of dig deep and and fix that in isolation so i think you know especially for for things that are dealing with data and decoding things and transforming things um structuring things as a kind of pipeline of operations is usually usually really beneficial in this regard yeah and i'd say that uh that decoupling can help uh, and that's one strategy where you can, you know, b- profile one particular section of code, but you also need to have a macro picture of how everything's fitting together. And so, uh, although it's a C++ talk, uh, there's this great talk by Mike Acton, who's the former director of, uh, of uh, the game engine over at Insomniac Games, and it's uh, about data-oriented design. So just search YouTube for Mike Acton data-oriented design. We'll also put a link in the show notes to it. Yeah, yeah. And... If you really want maximum efficiency, you can't pretend that there's no cost of passing data around. So, um, uh, so at the far end of the extreme is arranging your data in memory, uh, uh, so that the CPU can prefetch and, uh, perform operations. Uh, uh, a lot of people don't realize the most efficient data structure in the world is an array. Right. Everyone thinks about problems in terms of like, oh, you could do a linked list or, or a hash table. Linked lists are the most unperformant data structure you can use if you're looking at real-time rendering uh, for reasons about the structure of the CPU. And now, I, I know this is extreme uh, to say that you should <laughs> structure a, a trivial iPhone app worrying about the data memory layout, but you kind of have to be understanding how all the pieces fit together, and you can't look at a single unit in isolation because in my example, if I do a copy of a, a video buffer, uh, the copy, because it's such a large uh, chunk of data, is going to be a huge bottleneck and no algorithm is going to fix this underlying problem, you know, the limitation in the hardware. Yeah, absolutely. Like how you pass the data between your various operations is extremely important. And, you know, there are certain language features in Swift, for example, value types and things like that, that can become a bottleneck in this case if you don't like utilize these like copy on write semantics and things like that properly, where you might end up like copying the same big value between every single function call, uh, which, you know, can really slow things down. Well, what's funny is that everyone talks about just the, uh, the clarity of using structs and the design benefits as far as architecture. But what's funny is that structs are going to be way way more performant than classes in high-performance situations because uh, by inlining the data like this, it, it can, again, be all fit into one array as opposed to with a class, there tends to be a bunch of indirection and jumping over to the heap. So it's, it's funny that a struct is both... It's both going to lead to better architecture and reasoning, and uh, it should be a lot more performant than if you implemented the same thing with an Objective-C class. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with Objective-C classes where you need to go through that lookup table every time. And, you know, this is where we're getting into areas where like static versus dynamic dispatch. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a whole kind of rabbit hole that you can fall down to. But 
Um, I, th- I think like, like you said, to go back to your earlier point where not having performance as an afterthought, but, you know, looking at it from the get go and, and to kind of see like which part of my, of my pipelines and which part of my operations could actually end up, you know, becoming a bottleneck. Yeah. And I think that, uh, a lot of people misquote Dijkstra. I don't know if it was Dijkstra or Newth, but he's, uh, premature optimization is the root of all evil. And they don't actually look at the context that he's talking about. The, the issue is everyone trying to optimize everything without actually looking at priorities uh, and understanding that usually it's one code path, which is going to be critical. In my case, it's the render loop of uh, rendering on screen. And he goes on to say that uh, in another engineering discipline, if you can get uh, a performance per improvement of 12% for not a lot of work, you should absolutely do that. You should absolutely worry about performance. But when you kind of try to boil these principles down into one sentence, you can kind of use them to push across any agenda you want. Yeah, and it's 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 kind of funny because uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit later about architecture, and I feel like there's kind of this you know collective obsession in the community to to structure things from an architectural standpoint to be like elegant and nice. But I think there's a huge amount of elegance to be found in performant code, where if you can write something that is like really really performant and doesn't waste CPU cycles, doesn't waste resources, to me that's that's almost like the most elegant code that we can write. A lot of people talk about uh, the smartest thing or the, the most wonderful thing that uh, John Carmack did was he open sourced uh, the engines to Wolfenstein and Doom uh, years after uh, they were commercially useful. So you can actually go in there and look at, um, you know, it's still low level, but you can look at the crazy tricks they had to perform with the hardware at the time. And there's actually a couple of books published, I think the Doom Black book, and there's a, an analysis, this thick book that goes piece by piece and looking through um, the tricks that they pulled off. So there's a lot to be said for, you know, looking at this lower level engineering. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my favorites from that is, I, I might get the details wrong, but there's something like where he used a constant to like approximate a square root yep. operation. And I think that's just brilliant. <laughs> I think it got known as the Carmack square root or some, All right. <laughs> some trick. Yeah, it's just insane. And yeah, he's you definitely follow him on tr- Twitter, even though you can, if you're like me, you can maybe parse about one third of everything he says. It's really interesting uh, uh, to follow him. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I want to take things back a little bit to the camera domain and get into a little bit more details about raw photos, handling large files, and a few other things. But before we do, let's take a very quick break and thank this episode's sponsor, which is my good friends at Manning. Now, almost every single day, I hear from people who are just getting started with Swift and are looking for some really good books to help them going. So if you're in this situation, then Manning has got a really fantastic offer for you. Manning has been publishing technology and programming books for many, many years, and now they've released a special three-book bundle called Getting Started with Swift. It's just what it sounds like, a really great point to get started with building apps in Swift, or to go back to relearn some of the basics that you might have missed. So there are three books in this bundle. First, you've got iOS development in Swift, which is a hands-on guide to using Swift to build iOS apps. It'll teach you everything from UIKit to networking, you've got animations, how to interact with the camera, and so much more. And it's a great starting point if you wanna use Swift to build your next iOS app. Next, you've got classic computer science problems in Swift, which provides a great way to get into algorithms, data structures, and computer science fundamentals applied in Swift. 
Learning some of these things can be really important in order to design better systems or if you're going to interview at some big tech company, it can be a great way to prepare for those interviews. And finally, you've got Swift In-Depth, which takes things to the next level and shows you powerful techniques such as generics, protocol-oriented programming, efficient error handling, and more. And once you've completed all these three books, chances are high that you're ready to create some really great apps. So if you're just getting started with Swift, or if you're looking to level up your skills or go back and rehash some of the fundamentals, make sure to check this out. Here's what you do. Simply open up the show notes for this episode, which you can find directly in whichever podcast player you're using right now. There, you'll find a link that'll take you straight to the Getting Started with Swift page on Manning's website, and it'll give you a great deal on this bundle, which is a truly terrific price for this amount of value. So once again, make sure to check out the show notes in your podcast player, or you can also go to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast slash 40. And please do use that link as it'll let Manning know that you came from this show, which really helps support me and my work. Thank you so much to Manning for sponsoring this show and all of Swift by Sundell. So taking things back a little bit to, to the camera domain. So you talked before about the raw image format. So, uh, what kind of things did you need to do in order to kind of handle uh, those files? Because, you know, raw image files can get pretty, pretty big. So were there some special considerations to, to take for those things? So, and I should take a step back and explain what a RAW is. So, uh, when you take a photo, usually uh, you get a JPEG back from the system, right? And the process of getting that JPEG involves light hitting an image sensor that gets interpreted to a bunch of voltage values that get passed through this big pipeline and spits out a nice pretty JPEG. Uh, in the process of converting the sensor data to a JPEG, the system has to make a bunch of artistic decisions about how the image should look, and it has to throw away a ton of data. So a JPEG might have 8 bits, uh, whereas the sensor itself could have 12 or 14 bits of data. And if you're just, if you're not planning to edit the photo later, that's great and the, the wins are worth it. But if you're a photographer, uh, and you have the 16-bit uninterpreted raw data, then you can do all sorts of crazy stuff, even, you know, without using computational photography, right? Where you start doing stuff like merging multiple photos, like just having all of this, these raw, this raw material together, you can recover highlights, like you can bring back a sky that's been blown out in the background because the data is still there. You can choose how to reinterpret the white balance and it's really powerful. So, uh, to your point though, the reason that you don't usually hand your friend a raw is that it's more expensive to then process that raw in real time. And in fact, uh, if you ever use Lightroom and you quickly are flipping through your, uh, a camera roll of raw files, the raws usually have this low resolution JPEG. Uh, by default on iOS, they have this, uh, half megapixel JPEG, uh, that's just designed for when you're quickly flipping through your, uh, camera library. Uh, and that's because it takes a few seconds to uh, reinterpret the sensor data into something visible on screen. So, and to that point, um, th fortunately, I didn't need to write my own raw interpreter. And I think some companies like, um, uh, I think Affinity Photo has their own raw decoder. Uh, we're not a photo editing app. 
Yeah. So we still need to display raws in the app so you can review the content, but we don't want to uh, bite off that uh, problem. So uh, fortunately, and I think at the same time Apple released raw support on iPhone, they were cool enough to have a complete narrative by releasing a filter in core image to develop your raws into uh, something that you can just pass through core image, export a JPEG if you want. That said, uh, even though it's GPU accelerated, it still takes several seconds to load and then process the raw. So uh, a lot of our problem is, again, giving a good user experience. So one, like I said, the, the, these RAWs have this half megapixel thumbnail. It turns out if you just write a RAW to the camera roll and then someone goes to load it into Instagram, most apps on your iPhone don't know how to read RAW files and the behavior falls back to just loading that half megapixel JPEG. Ah. So when we first launched the app, uh, when we launched Halide, uh, people would inundate our support queue with, hey, my photos are all fuzzy. Right. Like, well, <laughs> even though you took a 12 megapixel photo, if you're loading it in Instagram without doing your own processing uh, to create the JPEG you want, then yeah, it's going to be fuzzy. And so uh, we ended up putting a lot of effort into, uh, we now write on your camera roll by default, a JPEG of the final processed image alongside the raw. So People who don't quite understand what you're buying into when you get raw, they still get a good experience. Uh, it, it ends up spending a little more space in their iCloud, right? Because you're now writing two images. But we also have an option there to turn it off and give the more advanced behavior if you really know what you're doing. So, you know, there's that uh, messaging side of things. And also people don't realize that the raw is almost always worse quality out of the box than the JPEG because Apple's making all the decisions for you. Uh, when you use camera or even when you use uh, AV foundation to take a photo, they just use the built-in processing to give you a nice punchy image. Whereas with raw, it's like you have a negative and it's up to you to push and pull highlights and, and uh, shadows to get things where you want it. So it's a lot of it is just user messaging and then making it easy for people to, you know, sync send the files over to their Mac. Um, we added an integration so that if you have Darkroom, which is free, there's a one-tap uh, uh, button that will launch the current photo in Darkroom, and sort of just a, a lot of the workflow is uh, what we're working on. Oh, that's really cool. So uh, was there anything specific, like, you're usually dealing with one raw photo at a time, I guess, when you're not, like, browsing those thumbnails, but has there been some kind of, you know, memory issues or bandwidth issues in terms of just, like, kind of actually dealing with those large files? So absolutely. And again, to what we were talking about earlier with uh, performance, people don't realize Moore's Law mostly applies to CPUs. Uh, for the most part, the bottleneck in your app is going to be memory. Memory has not advanced all that much in the last few decades. And uh, a raw, encoded raw, is about 12 megapixels that you're passing around. Yeah. When you decode any image at 12 me megapixels on screen, uh, well, each pixel has four bytes, RGB and alpha. Uh, so what's four times 12 is almost 50 megabytes that you're going to be displaying on screen and passing around. Yeah. And uh, if you if you put together a test app and see how much memory you have on your iPhone, you can probably get upwards of a, a gig and a half of memory before your app gets terminated. In the process, you'll also be evicting other apps in memory. So it will be a very bad user experience where if the user is like in um, iMessage and they're like, oh, let me go grab a photo and halide. And then we purge iMessage. 
even though the user won't blame us for that experience, it's just it's just not nice. Yeah, it also puts kind of a bad taste in your mouth, right? And then after a while, you might not draw that conclusion, but maybe subconsciously you're like, you know, this is not a good experience. And, you know, you don't want users to feel that way. Basic conditioning. Yeah. Now, so, uh, you know, that said, you, you ha- for, especially for Halide V1, uh, you kind of at a certain point, like you don't want to let something sit there forever and worry about getting a perfect. So, you know, obviously we're pretty good about memory. Uh, we didn't go crazy, but we didn't aggressively profile the app. Uh, uh, and what, what ran into a problem later is when we added support for depth capture. So, on iPhone X or iPhone 10 <laughs> and 10s, there's the uh, dual camera system that uh, allows the camera to capture depth data, a full depth map, which is used in portrait mode for isolating the foreground, the background, and applying that bokeh blur. Yeah, it's really powerful, and we added that feature to Halide. And and if there's one thing that we have is like a north star, it's like okay, let's give more advanced options to these features. So let's give more advanced capabilities. And so, all right, let's give users real-time preview of the depth data. Um, what we didn't realize when we launched that uh, until afterwards is that when you enable depth, uh, the depth APIs uh, on iOS, that's all powered inside AV Foundation also. And there's this sub-process called, I think it's Media Server D. And if you've ever noticed, if you've used portrait mode for too long on your iPhone, your phone starts getting warm. Yeah. It is incredibly taxing on the system because it's applying computer vision to, uh, to figure out the different points between the two images and generate disparity information and a bunch of math. And it involves lots of buffers and involves tons of memory. And then that process, that process goes up to, I think, 900 megabytes uh, in an instant. And I don't know where the rest of the memory is going, but when we finally benchmarked it, uh, we found that the app would crash if we hit above 300 megabytes of memory. And remember what I said earlier, that a full 12 megapixel image is 50 megabytes? Uh-huh. Sometimes you'll take bracketed images where we'll take uh, we'll process the image with bokeh and without it and write to your camera roll. So if you're, you're right now writing down the math, that means that it's very easy if the user takes a bunch of photos or they just have bad luck to cross over that 300 megabyte threshold. So, you know, it's not the end of the world. Half the struggle is recognizing the problem and acknowledging you really need to fix it. So one example of what we'll do is we'll load images uh, in your photo reviewer uh, that uh, using image IO, you can actually load images uh, without loading the full size if you just want to display a thumbnail. So in, now in image IO, we only load the image at the resolution for the unzoomed version. So we figure out your screen resolution and we load that lower resolution version, which is like closer to seven megabytes or it might be 10 megabytes or so. I forget what it is. And then when you pinch to zoom, if you look very carefully for a split second, it's blurry while we load the full 12 megapixel photo um, so you get a nice sharp version and so there's a lot of slate of hands so when you're uh, flipping through the camera roll we push uh, requests into a queue and if you quickly flip through the camera roll we quickly cancel the request if they haven't loaded yet so it involves a lot of careful work around there uh, fortunately that's the main area that we have to worry about is users accessing the camera roll uh, it got a little more complicated when we started uh, our own custom portrait bokeh blur which uh, that involves a lot of benchmarking and even now, I, I uh, there's no way to confirm it, but I think sometimes iOS can get into a weird state where something's consuming a lot of memory, but it's very difficult um, 
to reproduce some crashes that may or may not be due to you. But, yeah. you know, it's that's the worst thing is when you run into a problem and you have no control over. But the most we can do is we can measure. Um, we test on a large variety of devices. Uh, you know, we have a good QA process and we um, we try to keep metrics in general also around crash reports to keep on top of that. Yeah, it's very, very common when you're dealing with these kind of black box style APIs that they usually involve things like video, uh, you know, graphics, uh, images, etc., where you are kind of basically just sending data to the OS or to to a framework, and then the magic kind of happens under the hood and actually putting pixels onto the screen. And so it's very, very common to see these crashes and not really know what's going on. But in so many cases, it is uh, just like what you discovered, where it is usually a, a memory bound issue where you are running out of memory simply because you know something's going on in that underlying process and you were feeding it too much data or something similar and to that point it's really important to actually file radars not just because you hope that apple will fix something but often i will run into a problem and like this has to be apple and so they ask you to create a test project and in building the test project uh, I'm glad I didn't just file a radar, be like, what's wrong? You broke this. And it's like, <laughs> oh, actually, I'm doing this thing here, and this is what's actually going wrong. Yeah. And also in filing a radar, even if you do discover a bug in something Apple gave you, you then figure out the workaround, the delta between the demo project and what you built. So, you know, definitely file radars. Uh, uh, even you, if you don't get a lot of feedback, it can be a useful debugging tool. Cool. So this has been a super interesting kind of deep dive into into rendering and performance and things like that. But uh, what do you say? Should we uh, take it a little bit like um, move a little bit higher level up and take a look at architecture and view controllers? Sure. So um, you posted a uh, really interesting article uh, as we record. I think it was last week or something like that, where you talked about uh, view controllers and specifically uh pushing new view controllers onto a navigation controller and how uh, in most apps that is done by the actual presenting view controller, like one view controller will push another. And then there's this coordinator pattern that has become uh, you know, popular in the community. Uh, there's also navigators and all sorts of kind of solutions to this. But um, why don't you kind of summarize a little bit uh, that piece that you wrote and kind of uh, what's the problem statement there? The high level problem is let's say you have a multi-screen flow, like you're uploading a photo to Instagram and step one, you have a screen that uh, picks a photo. Step two, you add a filter. Step three, you add a comment and you, you probably want three separate view controllers. The problem is uh, to transition from one to the other. Uh, the first thing you'll probably do is say self dot navigation controller dot push, and then you'll pass it the next step in the flow. And it isn't really clear uh, the how uh, communication is supposed to work back to uh, whoever presented the view controller and you end up tightly coupling all three of these view controllers. So as an example, if with that photo uh, picker, you could easily reuse that if you want to have a user avatar picker. Uh, you don't have to duplicate the code. So uh, one solution that everyone realizes, okay, there should really be something else that's sort of managing all of the individual collaborators, right? And one approach that uh, some people will use is they'll create a separate object that they'll call a coordinator that bosses each of these uh, view controllers around. Yeah. And what's interesting is that this has been a problem for a while in iOS, and it's kind of how iOS has sprawled over time, uh, where it was very simple interactions and you didn't have to worry about as much. But especially as you start dealing with complex scenarios like supporting iPad, uh, it, it is the, just having thinking about things as far as one screen at a time doesn't scale. 
So the problem that I have in general, when you try to invent something uh, to solve a problem, is it's very easy to come up with some other level of indirection. There's a saying that every problem can be solved with another layer of indirection, except for the problem of too many layers of indirection. <laughs> exactly. Um, so if you take a step back and you listen to especially what Apple pushed around iOS 8, uh, iOS 8, if there was one theme around that release, was... Uh, adaptivity and converging a lot of the design between iPhone and iPad. And they added all these adaptive APIs, but uh, also they added like a method there called show. Yeah. And instead of calling self.navigation controller, which won't work if you're on iPad, you call show. And it uses something similar to the responder chain. It isn't really the responder chain, but it's similar. And it will send that message up the view controller hierarchy so that some managing view controller above the other ones can receive it. Yeah, the first container I think that it discovers will be the one that kind of, you know, gets the call. Exactly. And they also included an API to reroute that using a uh, a target view controller for action. So if you can't fit into a neat uh, idea of this containing view controller for whatever reason, you can do your own custom routing. I think that there's a very common perception that navigation controllers and tab bar controllers and these kind of container controllers that ship with the SDK are these kind of magic things that do this specific, you know, a very custom thing where in fact, a container view controller is simply a view controller that embeds another view controller. And um, you can build your own containers quite quite easily, actually. And I think view controller containment in general is 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 has been seen in the past as this you know system level feature, while we can actually take control of that and and drive a lot of our kind of presentation using that ourselves. Exactly. And I think that to your point, that a lot of people think this is magical and up until iOS 5, it was uh, yeah. <laughs> everyone. Uh, and that was because the iPad was taking off and the iPad usually calls for a totally unique uh, interface. And so people would build their own bespoke navigation systems or uh, UIs and they try to build these view controllers that would uh, nest other view controllers. And they kept making mistakes around, well, I forgot to forward this event around rotation events and now rotation is broken. And so Apple had this problem internally when they were building certain iPad apps. And so they were like, okay, well, how do we fix this? And they created a formal API to effectively, yeah, build your own, your own navigation, like tab bar controllers, navigation controllers, or something that doesn't even fit into either one of those, uh, as a sort of a higher level encapsulation. And so to that point, um, one pattern that uh, if you go back to UI image picker controller uh, that's been around since iOS 1 or iOS 2, the first public API, right? And uh, it is, if you look at the hierarchy, it's actually a subclass of UI navigation controller. I've never seen the source code, but I'm willing to bet because UI image picker controller has a couple screens. I bet that they're putting the logic around the, uh, the around that coordination side, the uh, view controller. But as a result of just subclassing UI navigation controller, you inherit all of the baggage. Like the delegate method is actually for UI navigation controller delegate. Right. And it also kind of exposes a little too much information. If they decide to rethink how you pick photos on iPhone, you're exposing that it's right now built on UI navigation controller and that can lead to all sorts of problems down the line. 
Yeah, it's a classic curse of inheritance, right? Where you're thinking, you know, oh, this view controller, in this case, the image picker, uh, needs so much of the same functionality as the navigation controller. So let me just, you know, take that functionality by subclassing it. But as, as you also mentioned, you end up, you know, not only getting all the benefit, but you also have to carry all the baggage of that parent class. Yeah. And so, okay, so we're at this uh, point, and to your point about inheritance, uh, so let's say the first version of our app, we're like, okay, well, maybe we can, instead of creating a new object like a coordinator, uh, wh- what's to stop us from putting this logic inside the parent view controller? Let's subclass UI navigation controller and uh, sort of keep all the logic there. And if you do this, uh, then what's nice is the people calling your API, just like calling UI image picker controller, you don't have an extra collaborator that you have to manage. It's just you're handing off this view controller. It is going to take over the screen for a moment and take over this activity. And then when it's done, it will send you a message saying, hey, I'm done. And it creates a very nice, loose coupling. And it doesn't necessarily mean when you present a view controller and present a flow like this, that it has to take over the whole screen. And on iPad, it does a popover, but you could, in theory, present a view controller in line in your current view controller uh, using a number of APIs there. Yeah. Now, the problem is we just talked about subclassing uh, UI uh, navigation controller. And if there's one rule around um, uh, inheritance is that you should favor composition over inheritance whenever possible. Um, it's not hard fast, but generally you're going to be happier if you can sort of uh, compose your problems uh, th- from other objects instead of inheriting. Yeah. So uh, if we combine that first idea of having parent view controllers in a hierarchy, there's nothing to stop you from creating this view controller that's just a veneer over all of the uh, uh, other view controllers. And what I'll do is I'll create a view controller that contains a single UI navigation controller. And uh, it it takes up the entire view. And this outer view controller is the interface for interacting with it. So we don't run into that problem of the delegate property being shadowed by the superclass. And it's a really, really nice form of encapsulation that I found. And it comes with all of the caveats as soon as you start messing around with view controller containment that you kind of have to... You know, do the song and dance around add child view controller, and there's a little complexity there, but it's it's a very nice uh, approach to encapsulating complexity. Yeah, absolutely. Because what you're doing also there is that you are uh, hiding implementation details and you are not exposing unnecessary details like there is a navigation controller at work under the hood, but the API user can't see that, which is uh, super, super nice. And um, another thing which, you know, around view controllers, and there's this, you know, joke that's always brought up about massive view controllers that MVC stands for massive view controller. And what kind of leads us down that path, I think, is the fact that we are so much looking at a view controller as this one big unit that is displayed, takes over the screen, and it's an entire kind of feature in one class. Uh, but if we instead split things up, and you know, t- also to your point, where you have like one view controller, which only responsibility is actually acting as kind of the outer shell, uh, and then it embeds a navigation controller, and then it can then you know present different view controllers onto this navigation controller, and those view controllers in turn can then contain all the various parts of this feature. So you no longer have this big massive view controller that contains everything, for example, for a feature like search or, or a photo picker, like your early example, but you have these individual building blocks that you can then compose together to form the entire feature. But as the API user, you have this nice kind of convenience API where you can just initialize one view controller, present it, and you're done. 
Exactly. And I think that a lot of people complain about the deficiencies of the structure and they come up with a bunch of different architectures. And I think that this model of looking at view controllers as an activity, uh, there's a view that they manage, there's a model. Like, I think that for the iPhone interaction model, it's it hits a pretty sweet spot as far as pragmatism and modeling a problem in very simple building blocks and over-engineering. Because I'm sure that people have just written in the time of recording this 10 more articles about architecture. <laughs> I'm sure. And I promise you, every single one of them has some kind of trade-off, which you may not even know about when you first start building. But it turns out it's really all about trade-offs, no matter what your system is and if I were on Android, if I were an Android developer, I would not use the iOS style of uh, view controllers. I would use whatever Android uses just to maintain consistency with the platform because you know I'd rather have a consistent set of trade-offs through all of the other uh, frameworks I'm going to be interacting with. When people jump into my app who've never seen my code before, I want it to be familiar to them. And uh, that also includes me when I return to a code base in six months. Yeah, absolutely. I want things as simple and consistent as possible. And for me, this is really kind of the role of an architecture to begin with. It's to make things clear. And, you know, if we start basing the architecture on a kind of familiar context or familiar kind of approach that most iOS developers, ourselves in the future included, will be familiar with and can then kind of building on top of that with our kind of very, you know, app specific abstractions that we need. I think that's in general a good approach because I know there's, there's, there's this fashion right now of, of architecture, architectural patterns in the community. And, you know, it seems like the more letters you have in your, in your design pattern, the better, right? <laughs> Where, uh, once you, once you start going down that path, uh, you usually end up with so much ceremony where, you know, in order to just start building your feature, you already have these five or six classes that have, you know, this, th these names that, you know, as a person who is, is not in, within that world, it looks very strange. So I think that if we can take things a little bit back to basics, maybe, and say, okay, maybe we can live with some of these trade-offs. Maybe things doesn't have to be, you know, perfect according to to this or that book or whatever but can be can work really well and can be familiar i think that's that's usually a very good thing i think i owe it to the lack of institutional history in our industry and it could we could trace it trace it back to people only end up being engineers for a few years and they go into management and but i think that maybe most of these people didn't live through enterprise architecture in the mid 2000s the java applets <laughs> uh enterprise beans factory abstract visitor whatever right uh, Look up Enterprise FizzBuzz to give you a taste of some of the uh, experiences you could expect in an enterprise architecture environment. And and a lot of it was actually triggered by the original Design Patterns book uh, that was published in like 93. And then Java came out. And um, by mid-2000s, uh, you ended up with all this complexity for what should be trivial problems. And there was a response through uh, more lightweight frameworks uh, in Python and Ruby and even PHP, sort of, you know, all these dynamic languages uh, that came out that let you build very simple CRUD apps uh, without any of the ritual. And for a long time, that ended up being a huge boom uh, until the pendulum swung in the other direction where it's like, hey, I can scale a huge service using this very simple architecture. Well, no, no, not really. <laughs> um, but it, there was just no pragmatism. Uh, and there was a lot of issues with 
uh, enterprise consulting thought leaders, and and it was a very dark period in the mid two thousands. And I think that if we don't learn from history, uh, there's a good chance we're going to repeat that as people are rediscovering all these techniques without the right discretion. Yeah, absolutely. And there's definitely a time and place for, you know, almost any abstraction. Like I will use factories, I will use, uh, you know, navigators and, and all sorts of abstractions. But, you know, when I create a new project in Xcode, that's not the first class that I add, right? Exactly. And uh, it's like, all these different tools, they're, they're great tools, but they all have like a, a use case that they're good for. And I think, uh, maybe going into it and saying like, let me build, uh, you know, an app that is as close to the MVC that Apple kind of started out with as possible, but then kind of adding things as I go, as I spot the spot problems that need solving. So the way that I look around design patterns is there's the patterns that I've stumbled on or the the patterns I use day to day. So if I'm building uh, an app that connects to a network service, I'm just going to repeat what worked. I'm going to create a network API class and I put all of my network methods there and, you know, just do what works. Uh, Then there's this sort of category of the things that Apple pushes as patterns like delegates, uh, target action, notifications, and they give you this toolbox of things that you're going to find throughout Coco. And you should know all that inside and out and consider that your primary toolbox because you can often compose solutions using these very basic tools. And these are kind of the table stakes. Anyone who considers themselves a Coco developer really has to understand all these fundamental concepts. Yeah. I think that a lot of people get into the weeds when they start actively pursuing more design patterns and opening design pattern books and just studying them without context. And there's a number of reasons and I could fill an hour talking about uh, uh, better ways of communicating the ideas behind design patterns. But for instance, um, uh, so Peter Norvig, who's a brilliant computer scientist and I believe now head of uh, AI research at Google, uh, back in the late 90s, he did a presentation where he looked at 23 patterns in the original Gang of Four book. And he showed, yeah, 17 of these are completely irrelevant if you use a different language. And even in Coco, there used to be this class, and maybe a lot of you are too young to have used it, NS Invocation. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was a way of uh, firing events uh, uh, at a later time. And it was completely irrelevant the moment Coco introduced blocks. Uh, if you still use NS Invocation, you're, you should not be doing that. And so I think that a lot of design patterns don't have a particularly good shelf life. And I'm worried by people who are like, they're looking at these old patterns and re-implementing them in Swift, which is absolutely uh, cargo culting. And to that uh, point, I I think the last thing I want to talk about is that humans are wired to recognize patterns. It's why we fall for conspiracy theories and horoscopes. Uh, We are going to try to find a pattern whether or not it exists. So if you start filling your mind with all these patterns that you have no idea how often they're used, you're going to pull them out like when you want to do a simple for loop and you're like, oh, that's the visitor pattern. Oh. <laughs> or you can use these patterns to justify something that is not very good, like global state by saying, oh, well, it's just a, it's just a singleton. And so you have to be very careful. And I think that especially if you're a junior engineer, 
it's hard for me to recommend someone not learn something, but I would say as far as opportunity costs and of all the things you could be spending your time on, um, I'd say mastering first principles and, and there's so many better uses of your time than to study design patterns. And maybe if you're advanced enough that you have the discretion and skepticism and taste, you can read them, but just be very, very careful and make sure that you understand all the fundamentals and in a way that you can reason through, oh, Okay, I saw how they arrived at that, but don't look at software as if you're composing a bunch of Legos. That will get you into a ton of trouble. Yeah, I think that's really, really good advice. And, you know, especially talking about like the longevity of things like, you know, you can criticize the delegate pattern as being boring and old and, you know, not, not, not very cool and fashionable, but it's been around since the very first release of the iOS SDK. Like in the, in iOS SDK version 2.0, we got UI table view and UI table, you had a UI table view delegate and a UI table view data source. And guess what? In iOS 12, we still have that very same UI table view data source and delegate, although they have a, a few more methods now. <laughs> and I think that just shows you that. You know, these things, they try to, to stand the test of time because they are kind of embedded in the whole design of the system. And again, sure, we can add our own abstractions, but I think, especially if you're starting out, really learning those fundamentals, even though they might not be the cool new stuff that everyone's talking about, but really mastering them and learning them well is, is, is a really great investment and will really pay off in the long run. I use delegates as my first go-to until I figured out what is better. I use delegates everywhere and I, it's as boring as possible and it's great. Yeah, boring is usually good when it comes to software design. Less room for errors. Absolutely. Awesome. So what do you say? Should we uh, round off this episode by answering some questions from the audience? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. So we've got our first question here from Zoe Smith, and she says that she really enjoyed your blog post about coordinators, the one we just talked about, and that you prefer using UIKit uh, to avoid over abstractions. So she's wondering if there's any hot new design patterns that you've fallen for recently. No. <laughs> Moving on. Next question. No, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm joking, especially if you follow me and my opinions. Uh, so I will always be paying attention when people are talking about uh, a new thing, uh, even going back to Swift, like, which is, well, that's a slam dunk. Like, yeah, I should probably be adopting Swift. But when people are talking about a new way of structuring things, I'll usually check it out. Um, two years ago, I think I played around with React because I hadn't been doing web development in a while. And it was a really interesting model for uh, managing state and um, uh, propagating changes. And it was really useful to me. What I will avoid is jumping on anything that's a framework to solve a problem unless it, it there has to be a super, super high bar to, to adopt a framework. But what I will end up doing is I'll take something that works and try to fold it into the way I code. So uh, and there's an excellent talk uh, from this last dub dub uh, adding delight to your iOS app. It's really a lightning talk. Oh, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, there's so you can eat it. You can uh, watch it in bite sized chunks. Right. And yeah. there's one segment on layout driven UI and they are basically spelling out how to have a react style state model where you update state and it propagates to your view just falling within uh calling uh layout subviews or uh, subviews need layout and the same thing with dependency injection is that the concept of dependency injection does not require a framework so 
to answer your question, I'm absolutely paying attention to patterns and what people are talking about. But as far as uh, uh, adopting them in my app, I will take it with a precaution and uh, uh, see over time, probably subconsciously, how it affects uh, the cotton mining day to day. But if you pay too much attention to everything that's happening, you're never going to get anything done. It, it, there are way more distractions. And thanks to social media and our society now, there's way too many attempts to get your attention that you really need a filter or you're going to get yourself into trouble. Um, I think the other question was around uh, libraries, and that's another fun topic I could talk about for some time. But Generally, I think that I'll adopt a library if it's a specific vertical uh, that I'm trying to tackle that isn't part of my core business. So uh, about a year and a half ago, I was prototyping something with my friend Sean uh, that involves user presence and sending that over an insecure channel. And we knew that we wanted to do end-to-end encryption. And that's a classic example of do not build an encryption system yourself. Exactly. Just like dates and uh, things like that, like... Don't re-implement that. Exactly. And so I, I forget what library I used, CryptoSwift or something like that. But I would say, if anything, I'd encourage people, if you're using a library now, make sure you're periodically paying attention to updates in iOS. So for a while, I would use a, a wrapper around the keychain uh, because the keychain is just such an awful API. Uh, but then it turns out, um, I don't know when they updated it, there's now sample code that you can just copy and paste to get a very simple uh, key value style in Swift of getting your items off the keychain. And just by copying and pasting it, um, you know, people uh, people shame copying and pasting a little too much. There's copying and pasting because you don't know what it's doing. But then sometimes duplication is nice because it allows you to avoid a dependency and uh, you can take ownership of the code. So, so now I just, yeah, I just, uh, I, I killed that dependency and I just use this simple boilerplate uh, wrapper in my apps. But I think that you should always strive to keep as few dependencies in your app as feasible. The the best thing about Halide, we don't use, I don't think, any third-party dependencies. And I've wasted zero minutes of my year trying to resolve something else breaking. Um, and also another nice side effect of that is that uh, without much effort, we end up having less code in the app. So it'll, in theory, run faster and it'll definitely be a smaller download size. Yeah, perfect. So I think that I have a very similar philosophy to you when it comes to these things where I will definitely look at a lot of different things and I will try to learn from them, try to look also at like what's the actual problem that this is aiming to solve and looking at that problem and looking at different ways of solving it. And a lot of times, to your point earlier about React, you can be inspired by the actual approach to the library, like what it's actually doing and implement that a lot simpler yourself within your own domain. So it's specific to what your app is actually doing. And the same goes for libraries as well. Like sure, for certain things, I will definitely use a library. Uh, but for a lot of things, even things like Futures and Promises, which I use a lot, I really like Futures and Promises. I have my own very simple like 100 line file, which just does Futures and Promises. And you know, sure, I could use like a big library for that, but if I don't need all of that functionality, there's there's very little reason for me to pull that in because a library, to the points we made earlier, are not free. Like we have to to realize that we have to maintain them. We have to maintain the integration point between the library and our app. We have to keep up with things that are going on. And if there are bugs in there, and for example, the library is, is not, no longer maintained, 
we actually have to step into that code base and overcome the hurdle of, of, of understanding what it actually is doing and fixing that. So I think there, there are definitely like, there's a trade off here, but in general, I favor inlining things, uh, even by implementing them or, or by copying a single class, if that's all I need, just to keep things in one place and, and as close to my app as possible. But I definitely always look around for new patterns and new techniques and seeing how I can kind of, you know, implement them using kind of my own personal flavor. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So you mentioned earlier how frameworks relate to the application size of Halide. So I think that's a good segue to our last question, which comes from Irshad PC, who wants to know how you managed to achieve such a low application size for Halide, because I think it's only something like 16 megabytes, right? Uh, yep. Uh, we're back down to about 16 megabytes, and most of that is uh, taken up by Swift uh, frameworks. So can't wait until that's bundled with the OS. Uh, who knows how small it'll get. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's a good question. And I'll start by saying that this first step is to actually care. And I can return to that in a few minutes. But let's say that you have buy-in that you uh, you need to get the app bundle uh, smaller. Uh, most of your effort is probably going to be spent on just static assets. And that's wonderful. It's just, a, it's <laughs> doesn't require much more engineering, but just go in there. And if you have an image that's stored as a PNG and it's a photo, you can store it as a JPEG and set the quality low enough, uh, that, you know, you won't start seeing artifacts. And that alone will shed megabytes off of your app bundle size. Uh, and if you can get away with it, um, if you need to load, uh, like a tutorial video and, you can stream it over the network, um, do that. So most of your uh, resources are going to be spent on assets. Make sure that you're using uh, asset catalogs in your apps. It's In 2019, you should be using asset catalogs unless you have a very good reason not to, because then you get to take advantage of app thinning. And they actually, uh, in this last dub dub, announced an all-new compression system uh, that should give you even more gains. Uh You'll find, uh, so the next step after all this obvious stuff is to go in there and you probably have already done this, but measure. Yeah. Don't guess. You immediately know you're dealing with like an experienced engineer when the first step is some form of measuring. So you have a target. And so, uh, in measuring, and here's an example of a mistake I made is that I, uh, I built the Apple Watch companion app on Halide. Uh, and it wasn't until when it was mostly built that I realized, oh, wait a minute. Your Apple Watch app bundles a separate set of Swift uh, frameworks because it has to be loaded on the watch, right? It's not in the same, um, it's not stored on the phone. So it went up from uh, uh, 16 to, I think, 32 megabytes. I shipped the app because like, you know, at a certain point, you kind of have to do it. And as long as you have the responsibility to go back and pay down that technical debt later, you do it. And so then I went back and fortunately it was just uh, a straightforward, um, you know, translation from Swift to Objective C. And I did that and, uh, it shot down from 16 or 15 megabytes to under one megabyte. All right. <laughs> so, you know, I think that and there's a separate conversation about people who are now, who, who are afraid of writing in anything uh, outside of Swift. Use the right tool for the job. Yeah. And so, yeah. So that was a big win there. And then after you're done with all that and you have the easy wins and you've measured, you, you don't have to be surprised that a lot of it is just code. And so, uh, you know, if you have a bunch of dead code, delete it. Um, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. There's, I'm sure there's a way to actually dig in to see what modules, uh, are, you know, occupying how much space. 
uh, I, I'd be interested in experimenting. I think that um, if you use static libraries, Xcode should be smart enough to um, do some deduplications uh, and uh, stripping. At least that, in theory, that's what's supposed to happen with static libraries, right? But Yeah, absolutely. As, as part of also inlining and things like that, it can take like a function from one static library and inline it if it's only called in a few places and things like that. Exactly. Okay. But at a certain point, if you have a bunch of code, you just have to delete the code. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, if you uh, have a bunch of A-B tests. And this is, I think, a lot of people probably run into this problem if they're a large company where you might be every week pushing out code that's an A-B test and you don't have a system in place to go back and delete the code that just never goes away. And so if you are in a culture where A-B testing is important, uh, important then make sure that you have uh, processes in place that people have to go back and clean up after themselves. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, again, if there's any one lesson is to uh, measure and so to the point of getting people to care, I think that a lot of people think that as long as they're below the app cellular app download limit, they've won, which is now 150 megs. Right. And one, it's just nice to not use up disk space on the user's phone. Like we are engineers, so we probably have beefier phones with more storage space. For the longest time, there were people who had like eight gigabyte iPhones and they were in trouble, right? So it just, just ethically, like you should be conscientious of user resources. And at that point, you're also competing with uh, that user's like vacation photos, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, you are, you are actually taking up space that they could be using for something that is probably more valuable to them than your coordinator. <laughs> yeah. And if you need to make an argument, argument to your PM. Uh, there was an article a few years ago that was reposted in Recode that talks about how uh, this company, this analytics company, bought a uh, reasonably successful calculator app, pretty normal one in the app store. There was about like a megabyte. And they measured as they deliberately started it increasing the size of the app bundle. And they would, uh, with every megabyte, I think they would lose a half a percent uh, conversion or something. Just check the article. But uh, what's interesting is that obviously when they hit the app cellular download limit, they saw a huge drop off. Yeah. But the real lesson here is that, again, a lot of people aren't on unlimited data plans. I was in Seattle a few months ago and I was amazed by how terrible the reception was in downtown Seattle. I don't know what's going on, but <laughs> I, I could I was getting like, you know, almost dial up speeds here. So if someone's out in a bar. And their friends like, oh, did you check out this app? Yeah. And like, oh, no. Here, download it. And they see that it's going to take them 20 minutes. They probably aren't going to download it, right? It just makes sense. And you can argue that technology, in, and it's been two years since that article has been posted, that maybe things are faster. But and one, until you can prove otherwise, I think two years isn't that much of a time. I don't think the, the world's cellular limit is better. But also, psychology lags way behind technology. And so there's likely going to be for some time people who are still conscientious about bandwidth and download speeds, even though they're on uh, faster networks and the technology is caught up. It's very hard to break that psychology. So, you know, if you can argue to stakeholders that it improves download conversions, then it's an easier to make that case. Uh, but, you know, office politics would take another hour to talk about. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like we really need to get you back on the show in the future, you know, to talk about all these topics in more detail. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, it's been a real true pleasure to to have you. And I think that we've had some uh, really, really good conversations, uh, really good advice, and uh, also a huge collection of links for the show notes, which is incredible. 
so Ben, uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, if people now want to find you online, uh, you know, your Twitter, your blog, etc., where should they go? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Sandowski. I have Sandowski.com for my blog that I now update once a year. <laughs> Um, great. So make sure to find Ben and follow him. Uh, a lot of good stuff there. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I am at John Sundell. And you can find uh, the show notes for this episode, which will contain all of the links, as well as our uh, great offer from our good sponsor, Manning, will also be in the show notes as well. And you can find that at uh, swiftbysundell.com slash podcast slash 40. So thank you so much to Manning for sponsoring this episode. Thank you so much to Ben for being on the show. And... Most importantly, thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.